Chapter 9 of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter 9 Typhoon Picks Up the Azores. It is about 850 nautical miles from the northwest corner of Spain to the island of San Miguel, the largest and nearest of the Azores, and we figured that Typhoon could make the run in from eight to nine days. 100 nautical miles a day is a pretty fair average for a long passage, taking into consideration calms and headwinds, but to be on the safe side, we had provisioned for a run of something over two weeks. This may seem to be figuring it a bit too closely, and, as a matter of fact, it was, but the sort of food we wanted to stock up with was difficult to obtain, and furthermore, our finances by this time were so low as to allow of no riotous expenditures. Having made a good landfall after the run across the Bay of Biscay, I was sufficiently confident of my navigation to ignore the possibility of missing the islands altogether, and as we felt reasonably certain of good weather and favorable winds, we took a chance, looking to the Azores as the logical place to cash a check and to take on our final food supplies. I must confess that we were inclined to think a bit too lightly of a run of 850 miles at sea. At 3.40 p.m. September 28th, we cast off from the quay at Coruña with our friend and benefactor, Senor Naya, aboard for the run out of the harbor. It was our plan, after rounding Cape Hercules, to put into the little cove on the other side of the peninsula opposite Coruña and set our friend ashore in a fishing boat. But as we were tacking out of the harbor, we encountered some acquaintances of his in a little sloop who offered to take him back to town with them. After several unsuccessful attempts, they luffed up alongside Typhoon, he jumped aboard, and we said goodbye to a real Spanish sportsman. At 6 o'clock p.m., after several short tacks, we rounded Point Hercules with its ancient lighthouse standing nearly 400 feet above the sea and squared away almost due west to clear Cisargas Island, just visible 20 miles away. As we passed the sandy cove on the seaward side of Coruña, Great masses of cumulus clouds, piled in fantastic shapes, hung above the town, all afire with the horizontal rays of the sun as it sank into the sea behind a wall of cold blue clouds. All about us we could see rain squalls hanging like black trailing curtains from the sky, and just before dark we encountered one of these with a vicious kick to it. Then as night came on, the wind died down to a light breeze, a half-moon broke through the clouds, and the sky cleared. At eleven o'clock, as we came abreast Cisargas Light, the flash of Viano, farther down the coast, jumped above the horizon, and soon after the flash of Hercules dropped below the sea astern of us. Once past Cisargas, our course took us farther off the land, which from this point bends down toward Finistiere, and I turned in, feeling that our second crossing of the Atlantic actually had begun. Tuesday, September 21st, bright and clear, wind east-northeast. Our speed during the night had been only about three knots, and in the morning the mountainous shore in the vicinity of Cape Torinana was still plainly visible over the port quarter. Several steamers passed between us and the land, one of them about a mile off, shipping water with every sea, while we were perfectly dry. During the morning we were surrounded by countless porpoises, and, thinking that a porpoise steak would help to conserve our food supply, I got out the old Winchester Express, 
the 5095 that George Kennan had carried in Siberia and put aboard Typhoon at Badek and prepared for action. Trying out the old cannon on a shark that swam leisurely a foot or so beneath the surface, without success, I went forward and plugged a strapping young porpoise as he jumped clear of the water. The mushroom bullet tore a hole clear through him, leaving the sea crimson for a yard around, but we were running free, and by the time we had come about and got back to the spot, he had sunk. They are nice, friendly fellows, these porpoises, and we should never have thought of shooting one except for food. By noon, Charles was down and out from the swell, and Fox also felt it necessary to part with his lunch, which he did cheerfully as usual. He is the only man I have ever known who could actually sing while seasick. The wind had risen, and it was necessary to be on the alert for the rain squalls that hit us occasionally. These sudden blows are the most dangerous thing with which the man who cruises has to contend, no matter where he sails. In the daytime you can see the black cloud long before it reaches you, but at night you must literally keep a weather eye open, for if one of them strikes before you have time to shorten sail, you are in for a knockdown or some torn canvas. A hard one hit us about five o'clock, while I was below cooking the dinner, but Jim and Fox got the mainsail off in time and we came through it nicely. Neither of the English contingent was successful with his dinner, but Jim thus far had shown no signs of distress and seemed at last to be getting his sea legs, much to my delight, for there is nothing quite so lonesome as being the only well person in a crew of dead and dying. Why it was I didn't get it, except for about five minutes during that blow off the Newfoundland coast, when pretty well tired out, I don't know, but the fact is that no amount of motion or oil or tobacco had the slightest discouraging effect on my appetite. After dinner, just about dusk, another black squall bore down on us, and while Jim nursed her through at the wheel, I lowered the mainsail, sheeted it in, and muzzled it with the end of a halyard. While I was busily engaged in the process, Fox shot out of the companionway, clad only in a rubber poncho and the determined expression of one who was endeavoring to catch a train. Reaching the lee rail, he wilted in the waterway, soaked by the rain and the seas that tore along the deck, but in five minutes he was below again, singing and laughing at the ridiculous spectacle he had made. We really needed a couple of reefs in the mainsail, for it was blowing half a gale, but we decided to risk it and carry on. Whenever it was necessary to raise and sweat up the mainsail single-handed, I was thankful that Typhoon was catch-rigged, for this would have been impossible on a yawl or a schooner of the same size. Reefing, too, was much easier kneeling along the cabin trunk or standing in the lee waterway than it would have been on a schooner, with its longer main boom extending over the quarter, where there is less protection and more chance of interfering with the man at the wheel. Wednesday, September 22nd, Equinox. Wind east-northeast, course west by south, glass rising. Several more squalls hit us during the night. At 2 a.m., Jim, who was at the wheel again, called me, and I got on deck with oilies over my pajamas just in time to get the mainsail down before an unusually severe one overtook us. The squall lasted but a few minutes, but it was still blowing hard, and as I had experienced some difficulty in getting the sail lowered, even when Jim luffed her a bit, we decided to leave the mainsail down and run for the rest of the night under jib and mizzen. The motion was easier, and we were able to get a good rest. In the middle of the morning we put the sail on her again, 
and for the rest of the day bowled along in the bright sunshine with a fine wind still over the starboard quarter. 12 noon, log 206.3, days run 134 nautical miles. Meridian altitude site 48 degrees 7 minutes 0 seconds, latitude 41 degrees 50 minutes 35 seconds. This put us a bit too far south, and we changed our course from west-southwest to west by our steering compass, which is west by south magnetic. Took two afternoon sights for longitude, neither of which was satisfactory, as the result placed us in about the same longitude as the coast of Portugal. If we get an unsatisfactory result tomorrow, we shall assume that the rate of our chronometer has changed, and bend south a bit in order to strike the parallel of San Miguel and follow it until we make a landfall. We cannot risk missing the islands. The skipper cooked a late dinner, which was eaten by candlelight, and was more successful than our recent meals have been. Charles took a little nourishment and held on to it. Fox, playing safe, had his at the wheel, and Jim, for the first time since leaving Baddock, took his sitting upright at the table. Quite a victory, for there was a heavy sea running, requiring considerable juggling. We celebrated the victory with our last can of pears the peaches already having been exhausted. By this time our kerosene supply was finished, except for enough to fill the running lights in case we made a harbor at night. Instead of the cabin lamps, we had been using candles for several days, and, since leaving Spain, we had burned aeroplane gasoline in the Primus stove, not a very successful fuel as it continually blows out. Even in the binnacle lamp we used candles cut into three-inch lengths, which had to be renewed at two-hour intervals. Of course, there was no real need of the running lights, well out of traffic as we were, for you can always see a vessel long before she can make you out. A threatening cloud bank that we had watched approaching blew over without a kick, and we sailed the rest of the night in bright moonlight with just enough wind to make it interesting. We appreciated such nights as this, after the hard, thick weather of the northern run, and it was the rule rather than the exception throughout our entire western passage. The barometric high spot of the entire North Atlantic lies just south of the Azores, and the glass is seldom much below 30. Even during the heavy blows, until we got well through the Gulf Stream, the weather was clear and there was no fog at all. Thursday, September 23rd. Wind northeast, light. Barograph rising steadily. 11 a.m. Set spinnaker and lower mizzen, as wind is too nearly astern to gain anything from it. 12 noon, log 329.8, days run 123.5 miles. Set clocks back one hour, as we are about 15 degrees west of the meridian of Greenwich. Meridian altitude 48 degrees 21 minutes 30 seconds, latitude 41 degrees 22 minutes 39 seconds. Took two afternoon sights for longitude. The first put us somewhere near the Azores, which wasn't any better than the position on the Portuguese coast obtained yesterday but the second gave us 14 degrees 49 minutes west, which stacks up about right with our dead reckoning. After a good dinner, I took the wheel at 9 p.m. It was another wonderful moonlight night, and comfortably propped up against the mizzen crutch, there was nothing to do but enjoy the beauty of it. Typhoon running straight before the wind, under main and spinnaker, practically sailed herself. Although we carried a square sail and yard, we never actually used it throughout the entire cruise. Theoretically, it is a good sail for running before a stiff wind, for it eliminates the possibility of tripping the boom when the boat rolls, 
but the problem of setting it without a jumper stay on the mainmast or some special fitting had never been satisfactorily worked out, and consequently, whenever the wind was too strong for the light spinnaker, we depended on the mainsail, altering the course a point or so and taking the wind over the quarter. At midnight, Jim came on deck all doubled up with an attack of acute indigestion, not altogether complimentary to the skipper's cooking, and was forced to go back again to his bunk. The following comment appears in Fox's diary. Jim woke me up at 1 a.m. with one of his shoes, which caught me on the nose. I got the castor oil and the instruction book from the Red Cross cabinet, and then took the wheel, and WWN took Jim in hand. Jim improved wonderfully as WWN advanced with the castor oil. Friday, September 24th. Wind east by north, dying, course west. Another passage from Fox's diary. 5 a.m., sun still down under cold blue bank of clouds, then orange streaks that turned into vivid red later, extending them from east to north. Red sky and morning may be the sailor's warning, but I enjoy it. Dawn and sunset are the most beautiful parts of the day. I rout out Charles, whose glum face spoils the picture. I point out the dawn, but he can see no beauty in it. Just ask me to get him a biscuit. Breathes there a man with a soul so dead. He moans about our speed, wants to go twenty-four knots. Told him he was almost dead when we did six knots, and asked what state he would be in if we did twenty-four pointed out that one knot, which is about our present speed as wind is almost dead, is much better than riding out a gale and going astern, wet through, cold, hungry, and sick. Turned in on deck, as one hour's sleep there is worth two in cabin. 12 noon, log 386.5 miles, days run 56.7 miles, wind practically dead. Noon sight, observed altitude 48 degrees 23 minutes, latitude 40 degrees 57 minutes 33 seconds. Jim, Fox, and the skipper had a swim. Water fine. 4 p.m., flat calm, but not so exasperating as others we have experienced. With mizzen doused and in crutch, jib flattened down, spinnaker set, and a foreguy on the main boom, there is none of the usual slatting and clattering of blocks on travelers. An occasional breath of air fills the light sail and gives us steerage way. 5 p.m. Fox cooks a good dinner of boiled spuds, fried corned beef, spinach, onions, and tea. The days are now very short. Saturday, September 25th. Becalmed. 10.45 a.m. Charles, who was on deck washing the breakfast dishes, shouted for me to come up. His enthusiasm was alarming, for Charles is not given to such emotional outbursts. Rushing up the companionway, we found, not the man-eating shark or the approaching twister we had expected, but a little land bird, somewhat like an American oriole, running about the deck within a few inches of Charles's toes, and apparently much interested in the process of dishwashing. We guessed that he was thirsty, which proved to be the case, for he went forward, flew down to the chain bobstay, and tried to drink the seawater as the boat plunged into the swells, ducking himself in the process. We fed him biscuit crumbs and gave him fresh water, and then he set out on a tour of inspection, visiting the lazarette, the cabin, the forepeak, and nosing about every nook and corner of the ship. He displayed no fear of us and allowed us to hold him in our hands. It would be interesting to know how he got 400 miles offshore, possibly blown off in a gale or carried to sea on a ship. 1145. 
Light breeze from north-northeast. Lowered mizzen and jib and set spinnaker. 12 noon. Log 389.1 miles. Days run 2.6 nautical miles. The worst yet. Noon sight. Observed altitude 47 degrees 59 minutes 20 seconds. Latitude 40 degrees 47 minutes 59 seconds. 1 p.m. Porpoises sighted ahead. Ran for Winchester as we need the meat. While approaching them, another and much larger school was sighted off to starboard, coming directly for us and jumping out 50 or 60 at a time. There must have been 200 of them, but they were headed south on urgent business and passed 200 yards ahead of us without coming near the ship as they usually do. Probably they were following a school of fish, as there were a number of gulls above them. Took afternoon sight for longitude. Observed altitude 20 degrees, 50 minutes, 30 seconds. Chronometer 4 hours, 56 minutes, 33 seconds. Longitude from above 16 degrees, 6 minutes. As I work up the site, our little mascot is investigating things below decks. He has been walking over my books and over Charles's prostrate form and is now taking a bath in a teacup in the galley. 6.30 p.m. Charles was lying down at sunset, and our sociable little friend turned in beside him, his head under his wing, not three inches from Charles's face. Later on, we put up an empty oatmeal box for him, placed him in it, and he went to sleep immediately. Most remarkable bird. Sunday, September 26th. Cloudy. Occasional breeze from south by east course west by south. Our mascot died during the night and was given a fitting burial in a jam bottle. Fox heartbroken. 12 noon. Log 437.1 miles. Days run 48.0 miles. Too cloudy for noon sight. Becalmed again. Longitude sight. Observed altitude 16 degrees 33 minutes. Chronometer 5 hours 23 minutes 25 seconds. Longitude, 17 degrees, 17 minutes. An exasperating day. Saw nothing to break the monotony but a barrel covered a foot thick with sea growth. Monday, September 27th. Fine, sunny day, but flat calm. 8 a.m. Had bully swim. Water fine. Lay about the deck taking sun bath and watched strange sea life over the side. Water wonderfully clear. 12 noon, log 446.5 miles, days run 9.4 nautical miles. Noon sight, observed altitude 47 degrees, 53 minutes, 20 seconds. Latitude 40 degrees, 17 minutes, 12 seconds. Spent the afternoon on odd jobs about the ship, and all had another swim. Replaced foot of mainsail, painted bits, spider bands, cleats, etc., and scraped and varnished part of rail. Fox finally weakens and submits to having his head shaved, as Jim and WWN did a couple of days ago, but Charles still holds out, true to his traditions of propriety. 2 p.m. Sighted masts over horizon on starboard bow, evidently coming our way, and changed course to west-southwest to intercept her, as she is second ship we have seen in a week. Occasional cat's paws give us steerage way, glass falling sharply. 5.15 Vessel we have been heading for, a three-masted schooner, evidently an American, close-hauled on starboard tack. Changed course to north and luff up ahead of her. 5.30. Spoke the schooner. She proved to be the Marjorie McGlashan of St. John's, bound for Malaga with a load of salt fish from the Canadian Labrador. Asked the skipper whether there was any wind where he came from, 
and he said he hadn't had any for six days. Asked him, if convenient, to report us. He dipped his ensign, and we acknowledged the salute with ours. Six o'clock. Schooner is hull down over our port quarter, disappearing entirely between the long swells. The sun sets, big and red, right over our bowsprit, and the full moon rises directly astern of us. Eight o'clock. We are doing between one and two knots, too slow for the log to register. 8.20. Wind freshening a bit and backing, so that we can now hold due west. Full moon and perfectly clear. Tuesday, September 28th. Sun rises astern as full moon drops in west, reversing last night's sunset. Typhoon sailed herself during Jim's and Fox's watches from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. When I came on at 3, we were doing about 3 knots. Wind increasing from southwest with big seas and the glass falling. 6 a.m. Took double reef in mainsail. 9.15. Lowered mainsail. 12 o'clock noon. Log 495.8 miles. Days run 49.3 nautical miles. Rain squalls in afternoon. Blowing hard with big seas coming over occasionally. Running before it would be a cinch, but close hauled the motion is fierce. Cooking impossible. Nothing to eat today but a can of chicken and some beef broth. Wind southwest. Course about west-northwest. Just before dark, decided that we had better heave to rather than fight it out under jib and mizzen all night. Crew sick and skipper in need of rest. Got out Thomas Ratsey's trysail, and Fox and I bent it on with some difficulty, Fox gamely sticking to the job between six spells at the rail. Doused jib, and I had my first sousing on the bowsprit. She rose to a tremendous height and then fell, and I thought the whole bow would go under, but she fetched up with the stick awash, and all I got was a splashing and a bootful of water. Doused mizzen and wore ship to get back to port tack. Took the wheel for a while to try her out, then went below and let her take care of herself. Wednesday, September 29th. This has been a decided improvement over yesterday. During the night, Typhoon rode well under the trysail, varying from close-hauled to wind to beam, occasionally taking a crashing sea aboard that I thought would smash the dinghy, which is lashed bottom-up over the port waterway. At 6 a.m., Charles took the wheel and kept her full and by, and she made a knot or so, but at 8 a.m. there was another rain squall, and after that the wind that had been from southwest gradually dropped. 8.30. Wind sprang up from north, and by 9 o'clock was blowing hard. The seas picked up to a tremendous size in a remarkably short time, much larger than they were yesterday, although the wind seems to be no stronger. 10 a.m. Lowered trysail, lashing it to the main boom, and raised mizzen and jib and squared away on west-southwest course with wind abaft beam. 12 noon. Log 517.5 miles. Days run 21.7 nautical miles. The noon sight was taken under great difficulty, with broken water coming over and the tremendous seas making it impossible to see the horizon except for an instant at a time. One sea came completely over me while taking the sight on the bridge deck. Observed altitude 47 degrees 16 minutes, latitude 39 degrees 57 minutes 52 seconds. We are doing only about 3.7 knots under jib and mizzen due to the heavy seas, which is not enough. WWN takes off trysail, which had been left stopped to the main boom, and sets double reefed mainsail, which gives us a decent speed. 
Longitude site taken under difficulties. Observed altitude 19 degrees 32 minutes. Chronometer 5 hours 9 minutes 24 seconds. Longitude 19 degrees west. This puts us still 300 miles from San Miguel, a rotten showing thanks to calms and bad weather. 6 p.m. Jim and Charles under the weather. Fox takes wheel till 9 p.m. while WWN cooks a supper with the blowtorch. 7.15, wind dropping. 10 o'clock, beautiful night, moon still almost full. Thursday, September 30th, wind northwest, course southwest by west one-half west. Barograph straightening out after long rise. This is a bully day with bright sun and fine breeze. The sea is comparatively smooth, but the long sweeping swells run about 800 feet between crests. Everyone feeling good after a breakfast of porridge and tea and a lunch of chicken and rice. Even Charles is waxing talkative and cheerful. We were becalmed for a while this morning from 8 to 10, and poor old Fox at the wheel said, They were the worst two hours I ever spent in all my bloody life. These long swells with practically no wind are the worst thing we have to contend with. Fox had her hogtied to prevent slatting, but when I came up at 10 a.m., we got a northwest breeze, shook out the reefs, and squared away under full sail. 12 noon, log 609.3 miles. Day's run, 91.8 nautical miles. Noon sight, observed altitude, 45 degrees, 53 minutes, 30 seconds. Latitude, 38 degrees, 57 minutes, 16 seconds. 4 p.m., breezing up and clouding over. Longitude site, observed altitude 23 degrees, 8 minutes, 30 seconds. Chronometer, 4 hours, 54 minutes, 18 seconds. Longitude, 20 degrees, 14 minutes west. 6 p.m. Tied a single reef in mainsail as it looks bad to windward. Friday, October 1st, 2.30 a.m. Wind northwest. Just came down after five hours at the wheel. The weather has been an interesting study. Early in the evening, we could see several rain squalls at a time to windward of us, with the streaks of rain plainly visible beneath the patches of dark cloud. Since 9.30, the wind has been up and down a half dozen times. Once during a rain squall, it was so strong that I got Fox up to lower the main peak till it blew over. Barograph went up very high and started down again a couple of hours ago. Over here, a rising glass may mean more wind from the north, but tonight's squalls would hardly come with a high glass at home. 9.45, wind dropping a bit, and we shook out reef from mainsail. 12 noon, log 609.3 miles. Days run 102.1 nautical miles. Noon sight, observed altitude 48 degrees, 32 minutes, 40 seconds. Latitude 38 degrees, 4 minutes, 36 seconds. This puts us within 10 miles of the latitude of San Miguel, and we change course to west by north to counteract current, which sets to southward just east of the Azores. Longitude site gives us 21 degrees 50 minutes west, about 150 miles from the eastern end of San Miguel. As usual, we are without adequate charts of the islands. San Miguel, the largest of the Azores, is about three-eighths of an inch long on our North Atlantic chart. A town marked Fayal is shown on the eastern end, but there seems to be no harbor. Saturday, October 2nd. Wind about north-northwest, course west-northwest. Barograph dropping. Another bright sunny day. 12 noon. 
Log 711.4 miles. Day's run 123.9 nautical miles. Noon sight 48 degrees 28 minutes 40 seconds. Latitude 37 degrees 45 minutes 16 seconds, which puts us on the parallel of the town of Fayal. 3 p.m. Clouding up. Take longitude sight earlier than usual. Observed altitude 39 degrees 29 minutes 0 seconds. Chronometer 3 hours 26 minutes 23 seconds. Longitude 24 degrees 9 minutes, 48 miles east of San Miguel, which we should see before sundown if chronometer rate is correct. 4 o'clock, log 850.6. Land ho! Charles at the wheel sights land a point or so off the starboard bow, a high, faint silhouette partially visible through a bank of clouds. Everyone greatly elated as our food is very low. As we rounded Point Hercules, Coruña, at 6 p.m. September 20th, the time of the landfall is 11 days, 22 hours. The logged distance from Point Hercules is 846.3 miles. 6 o'clock. As the sun sets, the volcanic peaks of San Miguel are completely shrouded in a black bank of clouds, evidently raining. Charles picks up land off Port Bow, a small island about 20 miles off, probably Santa Maria, as Formigas, though nearer, is a mere rock. The wind is heading us, and as San Miguel is broad off starboard bow, we shall have to beat all night to get in. By way of celebrating the landfall, Fox, Charles, and the skipper made baking powder biscuits for supper, the skipper directing the operations with cookbook in one hand and rolling pin, whiskey bottle, in the other. Nine o'clock, close hauled and practically hove to, waiting for the moon, which will be up in about an hour. We are southeast of San Miguel and somewhere in the neighborhood of Formigas Rock. Jim goes on deck occasionally while Fox and Charles turn in and the skipper reads Conrad's Arrow of Gold. 940, Moon Rising. Must be in the lee of San Miguel, but can't tell exactly where we are as there are no lights visible, not even the glow of a town. You'd think they'd put up a decent lighthouse to keep their islands from being rammed by a liner. 12 o'clock. Jim and I turn her over to Fox and Charles. Full sail, wind freshing. Sunday, October 3rd. This has been an exciting day, the most exciting one thus far, and I suppose we should be discouraged if we allowed ourselves to indulge in such feelings. Here we are, hove to again under Tom Ratsey's trysail, in a howling gale that has left us with a broken mizzen, all messed up below, and thoroughly tired out. At 12.30 a.m., Fox and Charles tied a double reef in the mainsail, and by 1.15 the wind was so strong that it was necessary to lower the mainsail entirely. Occasionally, when the moon broke through the clouds, San Miguel was visible ten miles or so to windward, and at 3.30 we picked up a flashing light on the island. The wind strengthened steadily, but we pounded into it throughout the night under jib and mizzen, and it was impossible to sleep below because of the racket and the ever-present danger of being pitched out of the berths. At 6 a.m., Jim and I took her over and drove her for two hours longer, and then, working into the lee of the island where the wind seemed a trifle lighter, we raised the double-reefed mainsail in order to beat up closer under the land, as we were unable to make much progress to windward under jib and mizzen. By this time, we were within five miles of the land, a mass of mountains, the tops of which were lost in clouds. The eastern end seemed to be a sheer cliff, on the top of which was perched a row of tiny toy houses, 
probably the town of Fayal, but there was no sign of a harbor. In the lee of the land, the water was a confused, tumbled mass like a giant tide rip, caused by the seas from the north and south sides of the island coming together, the steepness and irregularity of the waves making them much more difficult to negotiate than those of the open sea. Once, in trying to tack, we missed stays and received a knockdown that nearly buried the companionway, and we were forced to take off the mainsail entirely. She was easier under shortened rig, but the wicked seas and the wind, now a full gale, made it impossible for us to come about. We missed stays as often as we attempted it, and the slatting of the canvas was terrific, but if we hoped to make the shelter of the island, it was necessary to get her onto the starboard tack. In order to do this, I finally decided to jibe rather than risk slatting the canvas to ribbons. We should have dropped the mizzen peak before attempting the jibe, but we neglected this, and under the terrific strain the mast cracked at the deck. The shoulder cleat at the mizzen head had carried away just as it had when we were approaching the English Channel. Lowering the mizzen immediately, we improvised a forestay from the throat halyards so that the pitching of the ship would not carry away the stick entirely. We considered raising the double-reefed mainsail in a last attempt to make the lee, but finally gave it up, as it most certainly would have meant losing the sail. It was hard to give up the chance of making the land when we were so close. We could see the green slopes and the houses and the fields very plainly now, and the smoky smell of the land was like that of a Harris Tweed on a rainy day. Lowering the jib, we found that she rode easily in the trough with her head a couple of points up to the wind, and after great difficulty from the seas that were coming over, we got the trysail up. When this job was completed, Fox and I turned our attention to securing the jib, which could be completely lowered only after the outhaul on the boom had been released. As we were doing this, a staggering sea hit us, and both started away from there. I got the lifeline, and Fox went clean over it, but fortunately caught the main shrouds. Not seeing that he had caught the rigging, I got a death grip on the seat of his oilskins, and he came back with a jerk and the characteristic remark, safe again in the arms of a bobby. At the same time, Jim, who was aft trimming the trysail, stopped a flying block with his forehead, and Charles jolted himself pretty badly in falling down the companionway. Lying out on the bowsprit, I got the gaskets around the jib to save it, as the bowsprit, and in fact the entire bow, was going under every time we dove into the steep ones. The forestay seemed to have loosened up, and every moment I thought the mainmast was going too, but we rigged up a backstay and nothing carried away. That experience on the bowsprit was the most convincing argument for a knockabout rig that I have ever encountered. At 2.30, after sweating in the trysail, we went below and cooked up a makeshift meal in the mess that had once been a fairly presentable galley. The experience had been a trying one, but in spite of the buffeting they had received and the disappointment of being blown out again when almost within touch of the land, the crew took it all like Spartans. Although ready to hang over the side, they were not beyond appreciating the rather grim humor of the trick fate had played on us. I admired them. To carry on with a joke in your teeth, in spite of hell and sickness, is the real test of a sailorman. End of chapter 9